knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is the 241st episode of the podcast, and it also marks probably the 45th time I've talked about fly rods as the main topic of conversation on the Casting Across Fly Fishing podcast. But I don't think that I'm overstating it. I don't think I'm beating a dead horse. I don't think I'm casting to a dead trout. How about that? Uh, and the reason for it is twofold. So again, this is about the quarry and culture of fish, right? So the quarry is, is trout or other fish. And if you are engaging in fly fishing, then you need to use a fly rod to do it. There's other kinds of rods, but you need to use a fly rod if you want to be fly fishing for fish. It's pretty self-explanatory. But then you're talking about the culture of fly fishing and whether it be a logo for a fly shop, whether it be what you picture in your mind when you think of the aesthetics of fly fishing, whether it be the thing that you are most excited about grabbing when you go to go fishing, there's a very good chance that a fly rod is that item or it's an essential part of that picture. And so fly rods are incredibly important. In fact, they are essential to fly fishing. But there's more to them than just finding a good one. And today we're talking about fly rod action. Now, discussing fly rod action is an essential part of the fly rod kind of um, shopping experience, as well as thinking about the approach that you're taking to the kind of fishing that you're doing. So recently I did a podcast on bamboo fly rods, kind of why you might want to use such a thing. And so we talked about how they are generally going to be a slower to slowly moderate action. Uh, but there's a lot more to it than just saying bamboo is slow, fiberglass is a little bit faster, and then graphite is really fast. There's a lot more to it than that. And so today I wanted to get a little bit granular. At the same time, I'm not going to go into deep, deep details. For example, I am not a rod builder. I have never built a rod kind of the, the quick way that is to you know simply uh, add components to it and uh, wrap on some guides. And I certainly have not gone uh, full throttle and rolled graphite on a mandrel myself. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But I have had conversations with people that have done that. I have uh, in, in a, a previous life, uh, many, many, many years ago, uh, had a graphite rod builder come in and demonstrate how he rolled graphite to a group of students. So these are things that I've had experience with kind of at a, on a secondhand level. So I'll be just bringing little bits and pieces of that, not so much to satiate your curiosity if this is something that you're getting into, but maybe just uh, 
um, ignite a little bit of a spark, but then also explain how those things do impact your shopping and your fishing. So uh, the shopping has to lead to fishing. It doesn't have to. I guess you could buy fly rods simply for the sake of buying fly rods. But, uh, you know, the shopping is not the end. It's the means to get to the fishing. And so your shopping is going to influence where you're going to be fishing, how you're going to be fishing. And the action of a fly rod is a significant part of that. So let's define terms. What is the action of a fly rod? Because if you lay it on the ground, it's not going to do a lot by itself. Uh, the action of a fly rod. Uh, at the most simple level, is reflects where that rod bends. So if you are casting a fly line, a normal fly line on that rod, a, a line that that rod is um, rated for. So it says a little number five on it. You have a five weight line on there. Now, does that mean you can't put a six or a four on there? No, and we may get to that today. And actually overlining and underlining may be a podcast episode onto itself, but Anyway, you have that five weight line on a five weight fly rod. If you are making a good cast, your fundamentals are sound, and that thing is only flexing in that top foot, say it's a nine foot fly rod. If it's only that top foot, maybe foot and a half down to two feet, that's what's flexing, then that's what we call a fast or tip action, a fast or a tip action. Now, if that rod is bending down in the two and a half to three feet range, so it's really that whole top third that's bending, then that's what we would call a medium action. And then you have it all the way down to maybe a half or more, then that would be a slow action. Now, these three main categories are not tried and true. They're not perfect. As you go through the different materials, graphite, fiberglass, and bamboo, you're going to have a faster bamboo, which is probably a lot slower than a fast graphite fly rod and all the permutations therein. But these are general categories. And then you can also say that there it should be a standard. So a fast bamboo is really a medium fly rod uh, in the grand scheme of things, if that makes sense. But there's also another category. It's really a fourth category. And the reason why that this exists is because the vast majority of fly rods, in, in my experience, uh, in, in my collection, as I've sold fly rods, really fall into that medium fast category, particularly since I've been fly fishing. So we're talking about 25 years now. Um, most rods flex in that middle third of their construction. And what that does is a few things. And, and we'll talk a little bit about the science and the, and the engineering behind that here in a moment. But that is a great middle ground for all around fishing. I fish medium fast rods for saltwater. I fish medium fast rods for warm water. And I fish medium fast rods for trout. So these again, our rods are going to be flexing in that middle upper third. It's a great all-around fly rod because there's enough power from the butt in the midsection where you're able to make long casts, but enough softness in the tip where you're able to make delicate presentations. You're going to lose out on some of the advantages of a really fast rod, and you're going to not get some of the benefits of a really slow rod, but it really cuts right into the middle. It's also a great all-around rod for someone who is getting into fly fishing because you get the benefits of generating high line speed that you would have with a faster fly rod, but you're also also not going to have a rod that's moving so quickly that it's going to uh, not be sensitive to and absorb some of your mistakes uh, like you would get with a little bit of a slower fly rod. So it's a, it's a great action. So I would say slow, medium, medium, fast, and fast or tip action are your four main categories. 
So how does this happen? Is is this, you know, someone goes out into the woods and they find fly rods? Well, I guess if you're building them out of bamboo, then that kind of is part of it. But m more often than not, you have someone building a fly rod uh, that is built off of a taper. So what is a taper? We talk about taper a lot when we talk about line design and leader design. Uh, and all it is, is just that taper it goes from thicker to thinner. Um, so this is a, a thing that you have to understand when you are uh, constructing a leader, uh, whether you are simply tying tippet on the end of a pre-packaged knotless tapered leader, or you're building them from scratch. It's also something that I think is really important for you to understand as you are buying and utilizing different fly rods, how, or excuse me, fly lines, how it goes from thin to thick back to thin again, and how that influences and really makes for your cast. Uh, but fly rods are the same way. Obviously, you look at it, it's thicker in the butt section, it's thinner at the tip section. But how it gets there, both in the um, quickness or in the uh, way that it goes from being thick to being thin, or the amount of material that goes into that is what will determine the action. So if you've ever been on a website for fly rod design, or you've ever um, gone on a factory tour for a fly rod shop or something like that, then you've seen the complicated formulas that go into this. Again, not what we're going to get into today, but all this to say is that it is not simply to get a nine foot fly rod uh, that's not too thick in your hand. You have to start with something about the width of your thumb and get down to something that's about the width of a pencil. That's there's a lot more to it than that. And by changing that transition, that'd be a, a better word than me fumbling through what I said earlier, that transition from a thicker butt section to a thinner tip section and how rapid that transition occurs and at what point the transition is more uh, drastic, taking into account those ferrules, which is a big deal these days, as most fly rods are uh, three or four pieces you have to take into account those joint sections where you put the male female parts together um, and that is what will create your action uh, there's more to it than that there's the density of the fiberglass or the density of the graphite uh, there is in, in bamboo rod building it's it's even i would say more complicated in the sense of you're picking um uh, pieces of bamboo and the way that you're cutting them and the planing them is going to add to this also. But at a very kind of general, not fancy, not super engineering level, this is what is going to create the taper of your fly rod. But of course, like I said earlier, you can't go out into the woods and find a graphite fly rod. So how do people create these? How do people put these things together? Well, at the most basic level, when a graphite or a fiberglass rod builder comes up with a taper, they create what is called a mandrel, which is a tapered um, rod that's made out of a metal that reflects the interior of what that material is going to go around. So your fiberglass rod is hollow, your graphite rod is hollow, um, and this cuts down on weight. This also allows for more flexing. A hollow cylinder is able to flex more than a rigid um, uh, filled in cylinder is going to. So this also cuts down on weight significantly. So your thin walls allow for more flexibility. Now, of course, a thinner 
inner walled material is going to be more fragile. And so you don't want a fly rod that can be crushed or be snapped. So there has to be a certain thickness. And as the modulus uh, uh, technology has increased, as the actual graphite materials have, uh, their uh, integrity has increased, as other compounds have been added to them, ceramics and epoxies and things like that, then you are able to get thinner walls that are more durable or thicker walls that are lighter yet still retain their flexibility. And again, we're talking about rabbit holes that you could spend all day going down that are very interesting. But these things too will add to the action of a fly rod. So your graphite or your fiberglass is rolled. These things are in sheets. If you've ever done fiberglass repair on a boat or on a car, you know what a sheet of fiberglass and epoxy looks like. Uh, graphite sheets are, are very similar. Uh, and so they're this carbon fiber or this fiberglass epoxy sheet is rolled around with great uh, tightness and uh, also with uh, with great precision. And then it is baked, it is dried, it is sealed, it is sanded. And all of these steps also will play into how a rod feels in your hand um, it, because it has to do with the density of the material. It has to do with the finish. It has to do with the finished weight. And if you notice that fly rod manufacturers put the weight of their rods down to the hundredths of an ounce, and every one of these steps will influence that one way or another. And these fly rod manufacturers, particularly ones that are domestic, that are paying really close attention to these things, or even if a domestic company is sourcing them from overseas, then they want to cut down on weight, yet have the same sort of action and the same sort of durability that uh, that they could have with a heavier rod. And so they're shaving off as much as they can, finding ways to make this the most effective and efficient tool possible. So this is basically what goes into the, the construction of a fly rod, but it also influences the action. So the action of that rod has very little to do with its length, very little to do of the line weight that's associated with it. It has everything to do with the taper of the design that goes into constructing that rod as it is built up and around that mandrel and then it is put together in the various pieces that go into it. The best fly rods, generally speaking, are going to have a continuous taper from the butt to the tip. Uh, they will be constructed even accounting for those ferrule breaks where you have uh, you know, the first piece going to the second piece and so on and so forth. Um, they're going to have a smooth action where there's not going to be much of a hinge. And even in your mid-range and low-range rods these days, you're going to have that experience. But of course, rods that are constructed by expert rod manufacturers, they're going to have a continuous and smooth transmission of flow of energy as you go from that butt section all the way to the tip. Then the guides are placed at the right intervals to make sure that uh, they the, the line is being communicated uh, across the entire length of that fly rod at the right intervals so that uh, there's not a gap, that there's not a place where the line's going to sag. All of those things go into making sure that the rod performs well, but the action is, is being utilized to the designer and manufacturer's specs. So this is, again, a real high-level primer on the construction of a fly rod and how the action is influenced by the construction of the fly rod. Now, real quick, why does this matter? Why should you care? What does this have to do with catching fish? 
Well, when you go to buy a fly rod, uh, there's a very good chance that the care and the intricacy to which a manufacturer and a designer pay attention to these things is reflected in the quality of the rod. So that is to say that a smaller handmade rod here in the United States, a smaller company that's handmaking rods in the United States, is going to be taking greater care with these details on a rod-to-rod -rod basis. Uh, even with the, the designer might even be the one who's rolling the graphite and who's going through the curing process and then going through the finishing process, then a mass-marketed fly rod overseas may, may give you. Now, does that mean that those mass-marketed fly rods from overseas are not quality fishing instruments? No, they, they are going to do very well for you, and I fish with a lot of them. Uh, but you are going to see a little bit of a difference. Um, but this also means that you want to source your rods from a reputable manufacturer. This is where you are going to get into issues of how is this transition from butt to tip is being carried out? How are the components applied in a way that is going to um, add to the action of the fly rod, not to take away from it? Uh, a good example is poorly spaced guides, as I mentioned before, is going to, the, the line is not going to move smoothly through those guides and when you cast, and so it may concentrate that line and wait even if there's too many guides on the top sections of the fly rod, uh, and it's going to actually slow down uh, that fly rod, both from the weight that that rod is carrying as well as the line that is moving through those guides. Uh, also, even simple things like how is the handle attached and constructed. Um, small things like this can impact the transfer of weight. You want that blank to go all the way through that handle as much as possible. Um, this is why sometimes you'll see um, you know, trendy fly rods that have the blank is what the real seat is attached to because it effectively, uh, you know, communicates to you. This is, this is the kind of feel you're going to get. The entire rod is, is in your hand. Little things like this uh, are things to pay attention to. But then the real big question is how are you going to use it? How are you going to fish with this fly rod? Now, something I've said before that uh, I, I think is, is not new or revolutionary is your fly rod is going to be a reflection of your casting. Your arm and your approach to casting a fly rod has a lot of influence on what the end result is going to be. So if you, the way that you cast, if you're a little bit wristy, um, you're going to struggle with a slower action fly rod. Um, if you are really aggressive and you are moving very, very quickly, then that fast action fly rod, you're actually probably going to be throwing tailing loops because even as fast as that fly rod is, you're trying to make it go faster than, uh, than, it, than it needs to make. So there are some things that you can do to adjust your cast to the fly rod, and that has to happen. If you're fishing bamboo for small creek trout one day and then go to the salt and you're throwing 80-foot casts with a weighted uh, two-out clouser, you know, you're going to have to adjust your cast. Uh, but there's certain things about your cast that are probably wired into you. And there's a pragmatic aspect of fishing where if it works, then that's really all that matters. So you want to find a rod that is going to best accommodate your casting stroke. So that is why the best recommendation is to go and cast all the different rods. Cast all the different rods. I really liked the way that Orvis used to do it back uh, 15, 20 years ago and, and even before that, where in one rod series, uh, they would have multiple 
action profiles. So uh, the the Trident series, the T3 series, um, even the the Clearwater series back in the day, you could go pick up three T3s, and one would have like a 3.5, one would have a five, one would have a 7.5. 7.5 was a tip flex, the five was a medium flex, and the 3.5 was a slower uh, flex uh, rod. And you could cast each one of those rods with the same graphite, with the same components, with the same general uh, design aesthetics, and you're going to run into different feeling rods. I thought this was excellent uh, because it meant that uh, the people could get into that high level rod, that cutting edge rod with that same price point, but based on where their cast is. You can't do that anymore. I don't think there's any rod manufacturers that are necessarily doing that. But you can still go and line up a couple of different rods, either from the same manufacturer. So uh, a great example would be like Winston, where they have, or Thomas & Thomas, some of these real high-end manufacturers, where all of their rod series are generally within the same price point by a few hundred dollars. But there's the fast the medium fast and the medium action and cast each one of those and don't let price be the thing that dictates how you're casting or not because especially if you're using one of those rods you're talking 600 700 800 900 dollars so it's not a huge swing between those high-end rods uh, but you're able to determine this rod is really where my sweet spot is using the fly line that you're going to use casting at the length and distances that you're planning on casting which rod best accommodates your casting stroke this is, of course, assuming that your casting stroke is is decent. Uh, not not all of us are great casters, and that's okay. This is something to work on. But once you've arrived, and hopefully you've arrived to a certain degree, if you're going to drop close to $1,000 on a fly rod, or again, you can ratchet this back and have the same conversation in that three to $500 range. Compare those different actions and pick accordingly. But this is also true if you're just getting into the sport. You can go and probably find a slower or a faster introductory level rod and cast both of those things. They may even come out of a box. They may even come out of a kit. And it's the same thing. Find which one matches where you are today. And you might not be there in a year or in five years. And that's okay. It's good to have that diversity of fly rods because you're going to find that, you know what, for fishing dry flies, I do like a more moderate action rod. And for fishing streamers, I do like a fast action rod. So things aren't necessarily going to become obsolete in your closet just because you transition as an angler and because maybe your interests transition as an angler. So again, big high level primer on fly rod action. The most important thing is to get out and cast those rods. And if you're interested in why one rod casts one way and another rod casts another way, then you can really dive deep into some of the things that I introduced today, whether it has to do with design uh, theory, whether it has to do with the construction process, the rolling of the materials on the mandrels, and then the finishing, which goes to not only how they are cured or and, and, and you know sanded and prepared, but then also how they receive all their components. All these things are worth spending time doing. Find a local rod builder. Ask them if you can watch it. Maybe you want to start building rods yourself. Maybe you want to just take this deep dive and start rolling rods yourself. Uh, it's not for everybody, but I know a couple of guys that do it, and they really enjoy it, and they like to be able to have a significant level of control of what they fish with and what they sell to their friends. Um, you, you probably want access to a machine shop if, if you're going to be really going deep into it. But again, that is uh, maybe the direction you want to go with your pursuit of fish. 
Do you have anything that you want to add? Did I miss an enormous chunk? Uh, of course I did. There's so much that we could talk about with this. Uh, the, the thick manuals for fly rod construction uh, would take uh, entire podcast series on their own. Um, but again, this is something that is worth thinking about, not just as you are going to the fly rod shop to pick up something new, but also as you think about uh, how and why you're casting what you're casting. It's cool to know where it has come from. This week on Casting Across, the first article is called Four Fly Fishing Closets. Four Fly Fishing Closets. Uh, this talks about how anglers dress and how even if you are a unique and special person that you probably dress like someone else in fly fishing and what that might say about your approach. So a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek article about fly fishing dress and fly fishing closets. Uh, Wednesday's article Really interesting. Scientific assumptions and better conservation. Scientific assumptions and better conservation. So I haven't been throwing a lot of podcast recommendations as of late because I've just been really, really busy. I'm not listening to a ton of fly fishing podcasts. Um, I don't even listen to my own. Uh, but uh, I listened to a podcast from Ducks Unlimited in the last few weeks, and it talks about some interesting things that they're discovering as they're doing genetic testing on migratory waterfall, particularly mallards at the Atlantic Flyway. Now, the most impressive thing about this is how these guys and the conservationists that are following their data are following the data. They're not following a narrative. And there's actually some narrative breaking stuff that is uh, explained and proposed in this podcast. And that's what we need. If, if, if the prevailing information and the prevailing winds are, are the direction we need to go, then great. If it's based on data, that's great. Uh, but just because it's in the news and it's just because it's in the media and just because people are getting behind it doesn't necessarily mean it's right. And if we can back it up with good data, then we need to change course. Um, and that's kind of some of the conclusions that are come to in this podcast. So I, I write about that briefly and you can see exactly what I'm talking about on the article that I put out on Wednesday, Scientific Assumptions and Better Conservation. This week's recommendation is a great follow-up to today's podcast. It's called Trout Grass. Now, I'll send a link to Trout Grass on the show notes, this podcast page on Casting Across. But it's a documentary uh, from 2005, I believe, about bamboo fly rods. So there's a couple different ways to watch it. I think I watched it on Amazon Prime. I don't know if it's still on there, but they've kind of done some some refurbishing to the content. And you can read all about it and check out some clips over at troutgrass.com. So check that out if you want to see a little bit more about the kind of combination juxtaposition of aesthetic and purpose, uh, engineering and art that goes into bamboo flower construction. This is a great place to start. But like I said, you know, look at this and then go find somebody that does it locally because uh, I'm sure they can give you a lot more great information. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and then rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm -hmm.